Fellows Church, my name is Andrew, and I serve as one of the pastors here. I have the privilege of leading us through our study of the scriptures tonight. So if you could grab your Bibles and turn open to Acts chapter 9, we'll continue our journey through the book of Acts as we've been doing for a couple of months now, just looking at uh, the basically the history that we are a part of uh, as Acts chronicles the birth of the church and the movement of the gospel, uh, a movement that we continue to be a part of as a faith family here in Seattle. It's Acts chapter 9, what this passage we're going to be looking at today conveys is perhaps the most famous conversion story of all time. This is the story of a guy named Saul who was a religious terrorist meeting Jesus and being turned into Paul the Apostle. It's a remarkable conversion story, the most famous of all history. This is one of those stories that reminds people like you and I that no one is ever born a Christian. Regardless of what family you were born into, you did not come into this world as a follower of the way, as a believer in Jesus. No one is born a Christian. We become Christians through the experience of what's called conversion. The word conversion means to turn. And when we experience conversion, we turn from living life our way to living life the way. We follow Jesus. We put our faith in Jesus. We turn in that direction. And this is what Saul experiences here in Acts chapter 9, and this is what so many of you have experienced in your own life as well. And so as we look at this story, I want to encourage you to take some time tonight and just think about your own conversion. Think about the journey and the process you underwent to turn from your way to the way, to put your faith in Jesus where you came to believe the gospel. As you read through the story, you're going to see a lot of dramatic elements that were probably not a part of your conversion story. Uh, You're you're going to hear details that probably do not describe your experience with Jesus. But one of the things I love about the book of Acts is that it conveys several conversion stories. Last week, we read the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. And we learned how he came to faith in Jesus to turn from his way to the way. In a few weeks, we're going to look at the story of a woman named Lydia We're told how she moved from her way to the way. And today we have Paul's story put before us. And the details and the particulars of each one of those stories varies. Each one of them are different. The details of your story is going to be different from mine and so on and so forth. But it's not the particulars that we really want to dive into tonight. It's the principles underneath. It's the principles of conversion that we all share in common as we have been brought by grace to turn from our way to the way, which is, again, what conversion is all about. And so here in Acts chapter 9, we read the story of a man named Saul who is of Tarsus, and we'll learn, we'll learn some things about him as we go. But when we first meet him in verse 1, it's clear that this is a man who is in need of grace. This is a man who needs the grace of Jesus desperately. Pick it up in verse 1. It says, now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So one of the first things we see about this guy named Saul is that he was vicious. He was a vicious man in need of grace. He's described as breathing threats and murder against the disciples. That imagery of breathing threats and murder, it's this huffing and puffing of, of, 
of rage and viciousness towards those that are in your crosshairs. It kind of reminds me of the horses at the end of the movie Elf, uh, just before the NYPD goes to hunt for Santa Claus in Central Park, and they have this shot of the horses just snuff, huffing and puffing, just breathing in, gearing up for the hunt. This is where Saul is at this point in time. He was a vicious man breathing threats and murder against the disciples, against those who would belong to the way. Now, at this point in time, Christians did not go by the label Christians. Christians were known by their commitment to the way. And what that means is their commitment to Jesus. It was an echo of what Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 6, when he declared that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. People were believing that and giving their lives to that, and Saul hated it. And so he viciously sought to stop it. Now, this is one of three conversion of story, accounts of Paul's conversion that you're going to read about in Acts. And each one of them has a little bit different detail from the others. But listen to how Paul tells his story in Acts chapter 26, verse 11. And you can just hear his viciousness. He says, in, this, in all the synagogues, I often punished them, that is, those who belong to the way, and tried to make them blaspheme. Since I was terribly enraged at them, I pursued them even to foreign cities. He was terribly enraged at those who belonged to the way. Now, all of this ignited back in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen was bearing witness to Jesus and Stephen was stoned. He was put to death by mob violence. And we're told that Saul himself was standing over that scene. He was a part of what was happening to Stephen. So he's a vicious, vicious man who hated followers of the way. But not only is he, was he vicious in this moment, we find that he's also ambitious now, ambition in and of itself isn't a bad thing. It isn't a bad thing to be ambitious unless you are ambitious about your way and not the way. When ambition falls on our way and not the way, that's when it goes sideways. That's when it's not healthy. It's not good. That's when we need grace. Well, Saul was ambitious. And you hear this when he says that he took the initiative to go to the high priest and basically ask for a hunting license. Would you authorize me to hunt Christians? Would you authorize me to travel around the world and arrest and persecute those who belong to the way? Give me the responsibility of stopping the movement of the gospel. He was very ambitious, knowing that he was, that if he succeeded and if he made progress in that direction, he would kind of scale the ladder of esteem and respect in the eyes of his peers. One of the things we know about Saul is that before he met Jesus, he was a Pharisee. And as a Pharisee, he was a member of the religious elite, the religious leadership in Jerusalem, the most respected and revered group of religious persons in that day, in that era. And, and Saul belonged to them. And he knew that if he stomped out the way, then he would be able to climb the ranks. And so he was very ambitious and he wanted to elevate himself in the eyes of his peers and he sought aggressively to do so. So this man who's in need of grace was vicious. He was ambitious in the wrong direction. But understand that in the midst of all of this, he was very, very religious. Saul did not seek to kill Christians because he was an atheist. He did not seek to stop the way because he, did not, he wasn't a person of faith. 
He was a religiously devout man. And it is his devotion to his religious convictions that drove him ultimately in the direction he was heading. He came from a very religious family. He tells us this in Philippians chapter 3 at a passage we'll look at in a moment. But his family was so devoted to the Jewish faith and the Jewish religion that they named their boy Saul. Now for a Jewish boy to be named Saul in the first century, that, that's an echo back to the Old Testament. He was being named for Israel's first king, King Saul. And back in the day, Saul was known for being a man of tall stature. He kind of loomed high above everyone else. It's one of the reasons people looked to him for leadership. One of the reasons why everyone wanted to anoint him as king. And so when his parents name him Saul, they're saying, we want you to, to be tall in this world. We want you to loom large in the world and in the lives of those that you are leading or ruling or whatever the case may be. And so this was in his DNA. This was part of his heritage. And then listen to what he says in Philippians chapter 3 about his religious devotion. He's talking about who he was before he met Jesus. And listen to what he says. If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church. So he equated zeal with his desire to persecute the church. Then he says regarding righteousness, that is in the law, blameless. Paul was a religious man and he was very sincere and he was very devout in his religion. Now this tells us several things, but one of the things I want you to think about is that sincerity, that sincerity isn't that you can believe something sincerely and yet still be in need of grace. Just because you are sincere in your religious devotion outside of Jesus, that doesn't exclude you from being a person who is in need of the grace of Jesus. And so Saul was a religious man, and in his religion, he was in desperate need of grace. But then there's one other dynamic I want you to think about Saul, is that not only was he vicious, ambitious, and religious, Saul, I believe, at this point in time, is conflicted. I believe he is conflicted in his experience with God and what he is seeing in the lives of those that he is persecuting in this stretch of life. I'll show you this in Acts chapter 26, verse 14. There, Paul is telling his story to King Agrippa, and he, he's rehearsing what he heard from Jesus on the Damascus Road. But in that account, he drops a detail that doesn't show up here in Acts 9, but I think it gives us some insight into him being a conflicted person. This is what it says, Acts chapter 26, verse 14. He says, we all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice speaking to me, speaking to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, I don't know if you know what goads are. Honestly, I didn't know what goads were until this week as I was studying this passage. But a goad was a stick used to, to prod an ox to get, it, to get an ox moving and to keep an ox moving in a certain direction. And usually this prod was kind of attached to it to kind of help it move and, and it would be used by whoever, by whoever's leading the ox to, to go in a certain direction again to keep it moving down the path. But there, these, this goading was very annoying and it was obnoxious. And so at times an ox would like lift its heel and trying to kick against the goad so that he wouldn't be steered by this so that he could get this prodding to stop. 
But of course, an ox couldn't do that. It was an exercise in futility. The ox could not cease the goading, the prodding that it was experiencing. And Paul, Jesus said to Paul, look, why are you kicking against the goads? What is he talking about there? I think he's referring to the fact that Saul is very, very conflicted, that Saul has seen things that have bothered him deeply. I think when he witnessed Stephen endure suffering to the point of death, and as he was dying, he prayed to the Lord, forgive those who are treating me this way. And Saul is standing there overhearing that prayer. I think that stuck with him. I think it bothered him. I think he was perplexed and conflicted that this man would suffer in the way that he did and that this man would suffer and die in a way that showed love for those who were putting him to death. So there was a pebble in Saul's shoe, so to speak. That memory just sticking with him. I think when Saul was going house to house, arresting men and women and taking them in and persecuting Christians and as followers of the way, endured suffering with joy or endured suffering with faith, I think that bothered Saul because he couldn't make sense of it. Why are you people so devoted to this Jesus that you're willing to die for him? And then I think what bothered Paul, and more goading, is that as he would move from house to house, and as he stood over Stephen in Acts chapter 7, he was hearing the gospel over and over and over again that Jesus, the one who was crucified, is now risen and he is alive. And I think Saul was having a hard time reconciling that declaration and the death of the Christians before him and the suffering that they were willing to endure, and it just it was goading him over and over and over again. He couldn't shake it. And like what happens when we feel goaded and we're prodded time and time again and something gets under our skin, we, we lash out. And so when Saul talks about how he enraged against the church, he was enraging against something he could not understand. And so he is a conflicted, conflicted man. There was a book written called Detours. It was, some, it was subtitled, Sometimes Rough Roads Lead to the Right Places. And the author of this book tells a story about he and his family, what they experienced one Christmas evening when a squirrel found, fell down their chimney and got stuck in their wood-burning stove in the basement. And so they wanted to release the squirrel. They wanted to set the squirrel free. So they go down to the basement, and he writes this. He says, I thought if the squirrel knew we were there to help, I could just reach in and gently lift it out. He said, nothing doing. As I reached in... It began scratching about like a squirrel overdosed on espresso. It began to rage against the hand that was coming in to set him free. Rather than surrendering to this salvation, it just scratched and clawed and gnawed. He says, we finally managed to construct a cardboard box cage, cage, quote, complete with a large hole cut into one side into which the squirrel waltzed when we placed the box against the wood burner's door. We let it out into the safety of our backyard, and later I thought to myself, isn't it funny how before its redemption, our little visitor had frantically tried to bash its way out of his dark prison? Could it be that Saul's animus, that Saul's rage, that Saul's hostility wasn't an indication that he was far from grace Could it be that all of that was an indication of him being right there next to it? And he is kicking against the goads. He's 
He's responding to the prospect of redemption that would contradict everything that he has given his life to for so long. And so he's lashing out at all of that, frantically trying to bash his way out of his dark prison, recognizing if they're right, then that's, that means I'm wrong. And nobody accepts that message very well at first. Could it be that the people who are most hostile in your life those whom you see as being most filled with animus towards the gospel, animus towards the Christian faith, could it be that hostility and animus isn't because they are far from grace? Could it be because they're right next to it and they're kicking against the goads? They're, they're, it's an exercise of futility because they can't resist forever, but they're right there and they don't know how to respond to the hand of salvation that is coming to them through the gospel you've shared or the gospel they've heard or what they observed in the lives of Christians. And as they can't make sense of it, they're just lashing out and their, their world is being turned upside down. Could that be a sign that they're close to redemption and not far from it? Let's be really careful and really slow to write people off. Our judgment tends to be off on those fronts more times than not. And so Saul, yes, he was a man in need of grace, vicious, ambitious in the wrong direction. He was religious and as such he needed grace, but he was, it seems he was deeply convicted as well. He was wrestling with some things. And it's at this point in time when he is running to fulfill his mission, to stomp and to stomp out the, the movement of the gospel, this is when he meets Jesus. Pick it up in verse 3, where he finds Jesus, the, the Savior, who gives him grace. In verse 3, it says, As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Now the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. In this moment, Jesus shows up and he seizes Saul the way Saul sought to seize so many followers of the way. There's a sense in which Jesus arrests Paul in this moment. And this seizure, this arrest, it wasn't happening because Jesus was showing up to kill Saul or condemn Saul. Jesus was showing up in this moment to rescue Saul, to, to redeem Saul, to give him grace. Now, there's a lot of dramatic elements. Jesus shows up. Saul's knocked to the ground. He's blind for three days. He's blind by the blaze of Jesus' glory as Jesus appears to him. Now, I doubt those elements are a part of your story. They might be, but I doubt for most of us that's not really how our conversion went. It's not really how we met Jesus. And again, this is where the particulars must give way to the principles underneath. And if you're like me, your story is probably a lot like Lydia. Lydia, whose story we're going to read about in Acts chapter 16, we're told that she would, she would come to the place where Paul was teaching the scriptures and sharing the gospel in her town, and she would come there and she would sit and listen to the word. 
And as she was exposed to the gospel and heard the gospel, we're told that Lydia's heart opened up to receive the gospel. That was my experience. I was converted because I was exposed to the gospel early and often. I heard people teach the scriptures and talk about Jesus. And over time, the Lord just opened up my heart to believe the gospel, to receive it. Now, many people come to faith in Jesus in many different ways, but the principles remain the same. In every case and in every sense, there is, a, there is an arrest that takes place. There is a seizure that takes place where Jesus seizes his people by his grace, not to crush them, but to set them free. So he says this as he's asking, who are you? Who's this one that, that I'm in the presence of? And Jesus makes the statement, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. He says, get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. Now, a couple of things kind of stand up in the, or stand out in this moment. A couple of things that we need to keep in mind as we relate to Jesus together. I find it really interesting that Jesus tells Saul that Saul has been persecuting him. He takes it personally. And what's going on in this moment is we're seeing that Jesus identifies so closely with his people that to attack them is the same thing as attacking him. And Saul might not have saw it that way. Because Saul didn't believe Jesus was alive. He didn't believe Jesus was resurrected. He was just persecuting people who he considered to be blasphemers. But Jesus is saying, look, no, you're going after them, you're going after me, and that's a problem. And so you have this realization that Jesus so identifies with his people that how you relate to his people is, in a sense, how you relate to him. This is why we want to be very careful in how we talk about the church and how we treat the church. Now, we know that the church isn't filled with perfect people. We know that the church has flaws, that the church has areas where she must mature and she must grow. And when you see those and when you recognize those, how do you talk about those? Do you try to distance yourself from those problems and criticize them from afar? If you choose to stand from afar and, and criticize the church, talking in a hopeless fashion about Jesus' people, that may be more revealing of your heart than it is the actual church you're criticizing. So we want to think about how we talk about the church, how we relate to the church. Do we talk about the church and relate to the church as if the church is hopelessly lost? Or do we talk about the church as belonging to Jesus? And when we realize that Jesus so identifies with his people that how we talk about and how we treat the church is in the end, or how he's going to see it, is how you're talking about and how you're treating him. Jesus says, you're, you're, you've been persecuting me in the midst of all of this. And so he's reminding us of this incredible union that exists between the head and the body. You can't have one without the other. This is why we discourage disciples from ever saying something as dishonoring to Jesus as saying, I love you, Jesus, but I don't love your people. I want to follow Christ, but I don't want the church. I don't want to belong to the way. I don't want Christianity, whatever label is out there. You, we don't want to say that because that dishonors the reality that Jesus identifies with his people. Now, on one hand, the church is imperfect. We are practically imperfect. We are works in process. There's a lot of areas in which we need to grow, ways in which we need to mature. 
But on the other hand, there's a sense in which the church is right now perfect. This is what's called our position in Christ, so that when you put your faith in Christ, what is true of Christ becomes true of you. So there's a sense in which we can talk about the church as being righteous. We can talk about the church as being holy and blameless. We can talk about the church as being perfected. Why? Because the church is in Christ. The church is, in a, is the body of Christ, and what's true of him is true of them. So we can look at the church from that angle. Or we can choose to fixate on the practical dynamics and ignore the, what's positionally true about the church and, and fixate on what's practically wrong with the church and grow hardened, grow disillusioned, grow disenfranchised, cut and run when things get tough in the church. Or we can see what Saul is realizing here, that Jesus identifies with his people in the closest way possible. You're persecuting them, you're persecuting me. How you're talking about them is how you're talking about me. How you're treating them is how you're treating me. That's the perspective we have to have. This means that belonging to a church, joining a church, should look a lot like wedding vows. Wedding vows where you're willing to say, in sickness and in health, I'm in. Till Well, maybe not till death do you part because the Lord might move you on from this church to another church. But there is a sense in which you say, I'm in it through thick and thin. I'm in it in sickness and in health, in good times and in bad. That's what it means to belong to Jesus' church. That's what it means to be a part of his body. That's what it means to practically apply what Saul is learning in this moment when Jesus says, you are persecuting me. But then there's one other dynamic I want you to think about. Not only the fact that Jesus identifies with his people so closely, you have to see that sin is always an offense that God takes personally. Sin is always an offense that God takes personally. Now, I I doubt when we sin, we're actually, we're probably not thinking about God at all. He's probably nowhere on our radar when we are indulging ourselves or not denying ourselves or whatever way sin is showing up in our lives. I doubt we're not, I doubt we're thinking about God at all. And so it might be hard for us to realize that every sin is a personal offense against God. But this is what Jesus seems to be saying here to Saul. And it's certainly what David realized in the Old Testament. David was a man who sinned in a way by lusting after another man's wife and He wanted to have her, so he conspired against this woman and her husband and had her husband put to death so that he could have her. It was an atrocious, atrocious, selfish, selfish sin. And then a prophet came and confronted David, and David began to realize that he messed up, that he had sinned, and he begins to repent, and he begins to confess. But listen to how he does it in Psalm 51, verse 4. He, pray, he says this to the Lord, against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. You might be thinking, I, I thought he sinned against Uriah. He's the one that David murdered. I thought he sinned against himself in the way that he was lusting after this woman taking a bath on top of the roof. I doubt God was even on his mind. So how could that be, have been against God? Well, it's because every sin is a personal offense against God. This is why the grace that we need and the forgiveness that we find must come to us from God himself. 
This is why Jesus, when he's walking through the streets of Galilee, forgiving sins, this is why religious people like Saul got mad at him saying, you don't have the right to forgive sins. Only God can do that. And the only reason why they believed God alone can forgive sins is because they understood that all sin was in a personal offense against God. That is true whether you believe in God or you don't believe in God, whether you know Jesus' name or you don't know Jesus' name. There are some things that are true whether you believe them or not. You can put your head in the sand and cry out with all your might, the sun does not exist, but the sun is still going to shine whether you look up or not. When it comes to these dynamics about the reality of God and the revelation we are brought into by Jesus, we recognize that there there are some truths that are objective. There are some realities that cannot be shaken or ignored or denied. This is one of them. This is why deep down in the conscience of every human being, there is a little echo. There is a hint of eternity within the soul that, that believes on some level, or maybe doesn't believe, but knows on some level that God exists. And there's enough information there to render all of this just, to render all of this right from God's perspective so that Jesus can come into our lives and say, hey, look, you've been sinning against me. You've been persecuting me. You've been offending me, and we want to protest. We didn't even know you, Jesus. And Jesus is like, yeah, you did. Deep down inside, you knew that God exists. Deep down inside, you knew that your life isn't right. And Jesus is saying this to Saul, and this is part of the realization that every person who's converted comes to. Every person who is converted realizes that they were created by God, that they've sinned against God, and that they are in need of grace and forgiveness, of mercy. And this is what Saul's experiencing here. But not only does Jesus seize him, there's a hard reality here where Jesus actually humbles him. He humbles Saul. It says the men who were traveling with him stood speechless. They heard sound, but they didn't see anyone. But Saul gets up, and though his eyes were open, he couldn't see anything. He's been blinded by the blaze of Jesus' glory. He cannot see things as clearly as he did before meeting Jesus. It seems as though his life got worse, worse because of Jesus. But in this moment, what is Jesus doing? Well, he's humbling Saul. He's cutting Saul down to size. And in many ways, Jesus is mirroring Paul's physical state with his spiritual state. He's saying, look, there was a time when you were seeing everything in the world and you were going after your zealous pursuit of persecuting the church and you could see well enough to do so. But now I'm going to flip the script and show that, that when your eyes were opened, you weren't really seeing anything. And now that your eyes have been taken from you, you're going to start seeing everything. He's being humbled in this moment. He's being cut down to size. It even gets to the point where he can't find his way to Damascus. He has to be led by the hand. Now remember, this is ambitious Saul. This is the Saul who took the initiative to ask for a hunting license. He was going after this with everything that he had. Now he can't do what he wanted to do or willed to do because he was too weak. He's been humbled. He can't lead himself. He can't guide himself. He must be taken by the hand and led. Jesus is humbling Saul. Now we know from other portions of the scripture that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That anyone who is proud in their opposition of who God is and what God is like, anyone who is proud in opposition against the people of God in the world, God opposes that. 
But we know that he gives grace to the humble. And Saul is a living illustration of this. When he was going to persecute the church, Jesus opposed him, showed up and blinded him, knocked him to the ground, humbled him. And now what? Now he's receiving grace. He's being prepared to receive grace when he goes to meet with a man named Ananias. And this is an experience that all Christians have on a regular basis where Jesus is regularly humbling us. But Jesus has this uncanny ability of humbling us without humiliating us, right? To be humbled by Jesus isn't the same thing as to be humiliated by Jesus. But we want humility because humility is where God's grace thrives. This is where grace comes to us and fills us up and does all the things that his grace intends to do. So he humbles Saul, but then pick up in verse 10. Verse 10, it says, there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he replied. Get up and go to the street called Straight. And the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority here from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. So you can imagine, put yourself in Ananias' shoes. Ananias wants you to go meet with Saul of Tarsus. And Ananias is like, that dude's a terrorist. You want me to go meet with a guy who's been arresting people like me, putting people like me in prison, looking for our looking for us to be put to death. That's who you want me to go to? It's, it's reasonable that Ananias would protest this, that he would argue with the Lord, but the Lord has a plan and he has a purpose and he wants Ananias to go and meet with Saul of Tarsus. This would be like, let's say before bin Laden was taken out, he came to realization that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Savior, and he's blinded by Jesus in some dramatic moment, and then Jesus shows up to a missionary in Pakistan or wherever and says, hey, I want you to go and meet with this guy in this neighborhood, and his name's Osama bin Laden. Can you imagine the, the emotions and the rush and the fears that would have swelled up and the missionary called to go and to meet with such a man? Now, it is no overstatement, and it is not an exaggeration to say this is exactly what Ananias is being told to do. He's being told to go and meet with the most feared man in Jerusalem. Go meet with this terrorist. And the reason is because Jesus is at work in his life. And so we pick up in verse, verse, 10, verse 15. It says, but the Lord said to him, go, for this man is my chosen instrument. Take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Ananias went and entered the house. He placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road you were traveling has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with your Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit. At once, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now, here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is connecting Saul to another Christian. He's connecting Saul to another believer. Now, don't, let, don't, don't miss the gravity of this. This is one of the most important dynamics of conversion that you need to hear and that you need to be aware of. 
conversion is only consummated in discipleship. A person's conversion, turning from our way to the way, must manifest itself in the context of disciple-making relationships. Conversion is consummated. It is brought full circle only when that happens. This is why we talk about making disciples, because making professions is insufficient. A person can profess faith in Jesus, but until that person is connected to the rest of Jesus' people, that profession might have no legs. It may go nowhere. It might not grow up in any discernible, redeemable fashion. This is why Jesus, again, says in Matthew 28, I want you to go and make disciples. Don't just get people to make professions in the world. Make disciples in the world. And that's a much more involved process. That is a process that lasts a lifetime. That is a process that requires hum uh, community. That is a process that requires connection. I can't tell you how many times I've seen someone profess faith in Jesus in this city only to later detach themselves from community and to isolate themselves from a family of faith and from disciple-making relationships. And then they go seasons and long seasons at times, disconnected and isolated, detached from disciple-making relationships. And then you meet them again in the future and it seems that they're more lost then than they were before they ever professed faith to begin with. That story has been written over and over and over again in this city. So we have to think about the reality that a person's conversion is only brought full circle in the context of discipleship, in the context of Christian, gospel-centered, gospel-saturated community. This is why Jesus connects Saul. He says, you know who I am now. Now I need you to meet with another Christian. Now I need you to meet with another disciple. Now I need you to meet with another person who belongs to the way because that's where you're going to grow. That's where this experience is going to be better understood. That's where this salvation is going to begin to grow and develop in your heart and in your life. You see, it's in the context of the church or disciple-making relationships, community, family of faith. This is where we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Believing that it is God who is at work in us, us both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. But we need that connection. We need that community. We need that solidarity. This is a moment that reminds us that Jesus didn't just die for a person. He died for a people. He didn't just redeem me. He's redeeming we. And so we live in that reality together. Connecting to one another in light of what we've experienced. This grace from Jesus. And what I love about this connection of verse 17 is that after Saul shows up, can you imagine the insecurities that might have followed him into that room? Can you imagine the shame that might have threatened his ability to engage Ananias? I mean, he's been putting people like Ananias to death and in prison and in various forms of suffering. He's afflicted upon them. Now he's walking to, to meet with this guy. Can you imagine the shame, perhaps the fear, the insecurity, the weakness that followed him into that moment and Ananias could have responded in any number of ways but what's the first thing he said he looks at Saul and he says brother the first word he hears out of the mouth of another Christian is the word brother we're family now 
Can you imagine how disarming that was to this newborn believer? Can you imagine how affirming that was of this new Christian? He's being called brother. Ananias isn't saying, you know, we've been enemies for so long. Now we're, now I guess we could be friends. He's saying, no, we've been enemies for so long, but now we're family. That's what reconciliation does. That's what belonging to the way is all about. It's not about becoming friends with people you used to hate. It's about becoming family with people you used to hate. And so Ananias says, brother Saul. And then he reaches out his hand and he connects with him. He affirms him. He says, I'm with you and I'm for you in this. It's a remarkable moment where Jesus connects him. It's a remarkable moment where grace turns enemies into friends. You know, it's been really inter- into family. Sorry, it's into family. It's been fascinating to read about Kanye West's profession of faith and his conversion and see how people have responded. Some people have responded in bizarre ways. Some Christians have responded with cynicism and skepticism, but... But if we're understanding what grace is and if we're understanding what Jesus does in the lives of people just like Kanye, we shouldn't respond to him with cynicism and skepticism. We should respond with brother. We should, be, we should respond with support. We should respond with encouragement. And you might say, but did you know Kanye before he met Jesus? Well, I knew his reputation and it wasn't good from a Christian perspective. But neither was Saul's. You might say, well, have you heard some of the things that he said even after he's met Jesus? Yeah, have you heard some of the things you've said after you met Jesus? Do you understand that Saul and Kanye and others that we're in relationship with are newborn Christians? You don't expect a newborn to have the English language down immediately. You don't expect a newborn Christian to have theological language down immediately. You don't expect a newborn to be able to stand up and walk and run immediately. A newborn must grow and develop and mature. Spiritually speaking, we must grow and develop and mature because we're not going to walk right. We're not going to run right. We're not going to stand right. We need to grow. We need to develop. And for that, we need connection. We need community. We need each other. So when you come to faith in Jesus, you're not just coming to Jesus. You're coming to Jesus' people. What type of community will we be? Will we be one that looks at repentant, converted sinners like Saul of Tarsus and hold them at an arm's distance and say, yeah, time will tell? Or will we go to them and call them brother, treat them as family? Will we lay our hand upon them and say, we're with you and we are for you in this new life you found in Jesus? We want to support you in this. We want to disciple you in this. We want to encourage you in this direction. And so this is what Jesus is doing. His grace is connecting him to a guy like Ananias. And all the while, Jesus is changing him. He's changing him by giving him a new identity. He's changing him by giving him a new purpose. Now, later on in the book of Acts, you're going to see a shift in the name that he goes by, and it shifts from Saul, which means kind of that tall, looming, large figure. It shifts to being the name Paul, and that's the more common one that he goes by. And what I love about that is that Paul means small. 
Jesus is changing his life. He's, not, he's humbling him, but he's not humiliating him. He's helping him see himself rightly. And the reality is, in light of who Jesus is, we're all small. And so when it comes to the story of grace that's being written in our life, it's a story where Jesus should loom large, and we ourselves just kind of hold our spot as small people who are loved by God, who are in desperate need of God's grace, And then trust Jesus to loom large, to be the Savior, to be the King, to be the ruler, to be everything that he is and more. And then Jesus says, I'm going to show this guy, Saul, who becomes Paul, how much he must suffer for my name. So he's given a new identity. He's now part of the family of Jesus. But now he's going to receive a new purpose where he's called to serve the mission of Jesus. And he says, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now, don't hear that as retribution. Don't hear that as, well, Saul persecuted Jesus' people. He's now going to spend the rest of his discipleship suffering as payback for that. You've got to hear that as kind of what goes with the territory of serving Jesus in a world like ours. You cannot plant churches without suffering. You cannot reach unreached people groups in the world with the gospel apart from suffering. Suffering is required if the mission of God is going to be fulfilled. And so Jesus just sobers Paul up in this moment. He's going to suffer for my name. I'm going to use him to plant lots of churches in lots of places. He's going to suffer a lot in the process, but that kind of goes with the territory of loving people like the people who are fallen and broken in the world in which we live. And so Jesus is changing Saul, giving him a new identity, giving him a new mission. And now you and I kind of carry the torch of that mission forward. And you know this is true. Anytime you shared the gospel, it might not have been received well. And you, you probably left hurt in that conversation. Either you were rejected or your message was rejected or whatever the case may be. It stung a little bit. But again, you can't advance the gospel. You can't plant churches. You can't make disciples apart from suffering in a world like ours. And so Jesus is changing this Saul. He's turning him into Paul. And he's, we find him throughout the rest of the New Testament, a man who's redeemed by grace, a man who's affected deeply by Jesus saying, I'm going to treat you far better than you deserve. I'm going to seize you. I'm going to humble you. I'm going to connect you. I'm going to change you all by my grace, not because you've deserved it or because you've earned it. I'm going to do this because I'm a graceful God and a graceful Savior. And this grace that he experiences in this passage is one that he would never get over. So much so that he would write a lot about grace in his letters. I'll give you one example. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9, listen to what he says. He says, for I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. That means I'm not abusing his grace. I'm using his grace. I'm letting God's grace fulfill its purpose in my life. His grace wants to change me. I'm letting it change me. His grace wants to empower me to make much of Jesus in this world. I'm making much of Jesus in this world. His grace towards me is not in vain. I'm responding with faith and humility towards how good he's been to me. Now I want you to think about your story as a person who's put your faith in Jesus. And again, the principles being where the solidarity is and the 
and the unity is, not necessarily the particulars. And I, want to think, I want you to think about four ways, four aspects of Paul's story that grace redeemed. And then I want you to think about your own story in light of this. Grace redeemed Paul's biography. It redeemed his biography, his life story in this sense. Remember, he was very religious. He was very ambitious. Those were traits of his. He was living his life up to that point, saying, I must do this for God's sake. I must stomp out the church for God's sake. But after experiencing grace and meeting Jesus, what is he saying now? Now he's saying, Jesus did that for my sake. That's when your biography is redeemed. That's when your story gets rescued so that you're not living your life saying, I must do this for God's sake. You're saying, Jesus did that for mine, and that's the story of your life. And you live your life saying, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. If not for grace, I'm done. If not for grace, I'm going to waste my life doing things that I think I must do for God's sake Forgetting the fact that Jesus did everything for mine. So has God redeemed your biography? Is, he, has, is grace redeeming your biography? Is the accent shifting in your story so that your life is being lived, not so much focusing on what you do, but on what Christ has done? That's a redeemed biography. But grace not only redeems biography, grace redeemed Paul's heritage. Think about who he was. He was raised in a Jewish home, but... We also know that he was a Roman citizen through some other things in the scriptures about his biography. And so what that means is that Paul was a man who had a foot in two worlds. He had a foot in the Judaic world of the Pharisees, but he also had his foot in the Hellenistic or the, the, uh, yeah, the Hellenistic world. This is why he would be made the apostle to the Gentiles. He would be the one to take the gospel to people who were not primarily Jewish. So he would go to cities like Athens and other Hellenistic cities. And yeah, he would step into the synagogue and he would share the gospel with Jews who would gather there. But then he would leave the synagogue, go out into the streets, and he would share the gospel with Gentiles there. He was uniquely equipped for that mission because of the family heritage and the upbringing that he, that he experienced. Now, when grace begins to redeem our heritage, we begin to look back on our life story and we begin to see all the ways in which God has been equipping us for the various ways in which we're serving him now. And a lot of times, that's good things. It was, it was great that Paul was raised with this foot in the Jewish world and the foot in the, the Roman world. That was a great dynamic to his story that grace redeemed and began to use for God's purposes. And there are things about your heritage that grace is redeeming as well. Your, your family connections, your education, your background, whatever the case may be and how grace can use that. But I think when it comes to heritage, one of the things we struggle with is we look back on our past and we're, pr we're prone to think that our heritage is more of a handicap to us rather than a help to us. And we look at our heritage and we think, well, my parents were divorced. We look at our heritage and say, well, my heritage is one of abuse. We look at our heritage and we look at all these terrible things that might have littered our past and littered our biography up to a certain point. And, and we view those things as handicaps. But if we understand redemption and we understand grace... That means that grace and redemption, Jesus buys it all back. And it means that even the worst things about your heritage can now be used by the grace of God for your joy and for the good of those around you. This is what grace redeeming our heritage is all about, as grace redeems both the good and the bad of our life story. And we find that all of it's useful to God. 
Because God is a kind of God who works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And all things there mean all things, right? The good and the bad. So grace redeems our heritage. Grace redeemed Paul's ambition. Remember, he was an ambitious guy before he met Jesus, but it was a selfish ambition. Once he met Jesus, he didn't stop being ambitious. He just started being ambitious in the right direction. So that now he's planting churches all over the world. He's enduring suffering, showing great resilience. He's using his mind and his prolific writing abilities to pen 13 of the 27 books in our New Testament. All of this coming out of the life and the ministry of a man whose ambition was redeemed by grace. So if you are an ambitious person, figure out how your ambition can serve the kingdom of God. Figure out how your ambition can serve the purposes of grace in this world. Don't see ambition as an inherently bad thing. See it as a morally neutral thing, but then it becomes a morally positive thing when it is given over to the purposes of grace. That means your talents, your skills, your abilities, leverage them all to make the most of the life that you've been given. And then one other dynamic I want to leave you with. As you consider these dynamics, grace redeemed Paul's biography, his heritage, his ambition. But then there's one other aspect of his life that I haven't mentioned yet. But it becomes readily apparent the more you study his story in the Bible, grace redeemed Paul's singleness. Paul was a single man. And he did not view his singleness as an inferior status in the church or an inferior status in the kingdom of God. He understood that as a single person, and he would write about this in 1 Corinthians, that there were things he could do precisely because he was single. And so Paul was the type of guy who did not say, I'll start taking my relationship with Jesus seriously when I get married. He did not say, I'll start taking the mission of Jesus seriously when I get married, but first I must get married. He didn't punt everything into the future looking for this day to come so that everything in the present was on pause. No, he recognized that as a single person, there were many ways in which he was in an advantageous position to serve Jesus and to advance his kingdom in the world. And so grace redeemed Paul's singleness. He did not view his singleness as an indictment on God's provision in his life. He did not say, well, I'm single because God is withholding something good from me. Instead, he realized that because he was single, there were things that only he could do because of that season of singleness that was, he was in and for some because of the lifetime of singleness that he lived and experienced. Your singleness is not a handicap. Your singleness is a great help to the purposes of grace in the city of Seattle. Do you realize how many single person, how many single persons live in this city who do not know the Savior? And they're going to be more prone, perhaps, to hear your voice to them than perhaps my voice to them. And so I want to encourage you in your singleness. Don't view it as a handicap. Don't view it as a frustration about God's lack of provision in your life. See it as God's provision in your life. For however long your singleness may last, lift the hilt every situation you believe to be the will of God. And right now, you must believe that that is God's will for you.
And so you think, okay, how am I equipped in my singleness to do things that, no, that perhaps a married person cannot do? How can I be an advantage? How can I be a benefit? How can I be a blessing right now to the purposes of grace in the world? Singleness is a gift, even if it doesn't feel like it at times. But I want to encourage you with this perspective because I don't want anyone to think in this church that single persons are viewed as inferior to married persons. We don't start taking you seriously when you get married. We take you seriously as a disciple of Jesus, gifted and filled with the Holy Spirit to serve the purposes of grace right now. And so we want you to be encouraged. We want you to be set free from the pressures of expectation that may be imposed upon you by other people. I want you to see yourself from God's perspective. And God in his grace redeems every stage of life that we find ourselves in. If you're married, there's purpose. If you're single, there's purpose. All serve in unique ways the purposes of grace in the world that is. And so make the most of the life stage and the life state that you are in right now. So I ask you, are you redeemed by grace? Are you being redeemed by grace? Are there areas of your life that's being affected by the grace of Jesus towards you? Are there areas of your life that you've not connected Jesus' grace to yet and you need to start thinking through that and praying through that? Whatever the case may be, I hope that you grow in a direction that says, I'm never going to get over the grace that Jesus has given me. I'm never going to get over my conversion. I'm never going to get over the fact that Jesus loves me and that he wants me and that he seized me and he's humbled me. He's connected me. He's changing me. I'm, I'm in it and I'm in it for the long haul. Let's pray together.